So, Renato, was DOJ wise to give Cash Patel immunity to testify in front of the grand jury? It's complicated. Hi, I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, practicing lawyer, and legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University, and I'm a former FBI special agent and also a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, I want to talk today about a guy I've had my eye on for the last several years. Our oh, friend. My. <laughs> Our friend Cash Patel, who's made his rounds through various parts of the federal government, uh, from Devin Nunes staff to the National Security Council to DOD, and most recently in this entire Mar-a-Lago saga. I, I think of him sort of as the Forrest Gump of the Trump years. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, <laughs> he seems to show up everywhere, right? He shows uh, up everywhere. Um, but the reason he's come up most recently is because we've learned that the Justice Department prosecutors have offered him immunity. And I want to just first break down all of these things. Uh, so what is immunity? And specifically, what is use immunity, which is what Patel appears to have received from DOJ. So immunity is a protection that keeps you from being prosecuted. Uh, and immunity can be given either by a prosecutor or by a judge. So a prosecutor can give you what a lot of times is referred to as letter immunity. In other words, you get a letter from the United States attorney saying, I, you know, I um, will not prosecute you, Cash Patel. Uh, and that can that can be very valuable because the United States attorneys have has that agreement or the, is making that representation not to do it. The, the downside, of course, is that the D.A. or the attorney general or someone else can turn around and say, uh, yeah, you know, just James, I'm not I'm not the U.S. attorney. I've decided I'm going to prosecute you. So getting uh, process, so getting immunity from a court uh, is often uh, more sure uh, gives more assurance to somebody who wants immunity. Now, can, can we, I stop you there for a second? Yeah, because this, I think this is a really important distinction. So that letter immunity that you just mentioned is something that comes from a prosecutor. Right. Is that something that, for example, we saw that in the Bill Cosby case? Mm -hmm. Is that what was going on there, that a prosecutor had promised him he wouldn't be prosecuted? It then later complicated um, a, you know, a future prosecution after other evidence came to light. But you're saying in this case, it's coming from a judge. That's right. And, and uh, another example that old folks like ourselves might remember is the Monica Lewinsky case. Uh, Kenneth Starr was coming after Monica Lewinsky, and she refused to accept uh, immunity from Kenneth Starr. She wanted immunity from a court. And she wanted what's called transactional immunity, which leads us into our next topic, which is immunity against everything, because she was understandably concerned. I think at that point that Kenneth Starr was just looking for an excuse to prosecute her for anything. Um, and, and so use immunity is essentially just protection for um, prosecution for the statements that you're given. So, for example, um, if I am about to give a statement in court and I get use immunity and I say, yes, I um, I did murder 
um, you know, I killed Kenny, uh, for example, well, then my words can't be used to prove that I killed Kenny. But if there's some other evidence out there, like a bloody knife in my you know, basement or something like that, the prosecutors can develop that evidence separate and apart from my testimony and prosecute me for that. It, is that, though, for all practical purposes, still like a much broader immunity? Is, isn't didn't Oliver North, for example, get use immunity and then later when he was prosecuted the court found that they could the that doj could not adequately disentangle the independent the quote-unquote independent case they had made from the testimony he had provided well and that's precisely why it's complicated Asha. so <laughs> um so yeah as a as a practical matter you have to um, separate out, right, what prosecutors learn from the statements themselves versus what they learn from the other evidence. And that's often difficult to do, right? So, for example, if Cash Patel comes forward and says a whole bunch of things about a complicated um, obstruction of justice scheme between himself and Donald Trump, um, you know, those statements can't be used against him. Sure. Now, the prosecution could go and find all this other evidence, emails, text messages, and so on. But the argument that Mr. Patel and his attorney would make later is that, well, they wouldn't have known to look for these things or they wouldn't have been inspired to do so if they hadn't heard his testimony. And so it often can be really hard to entangle. And it's really, val I mean, as a, as a result, it's, a, it's certainly still a very valuable thing, but much more limited. And, and um, you know, if you could get broader immunity, you would try to obtain that. Okay. So we have a handle on what it is and who gave it in this case, the judge, not the prosecutors. And this is because it's a better guarantee for him is what I that, That's right. Say. Well, it's also because of the context in which this all took place, because the way this started was that Cash Patel was subpoenaed to provide testimony to the grand jury or the prosecutors wanted to subpoena him to do that. And then he said, well, I'm going to take the fifth. And my understanding, based on reporting, is the prosecutors, federal prosecutors, are like, no, you can't because there's no, no crime associated with this testimony. And I guess we should kind of give the background here. The testimony was him saying, and I think he said this on podcasts and on uh, other you know, types of right-wing media, that uh, Trump has sort of waved his hands and said that all documents brought to his bedroom were declassified, among other things, right, about declassifying documents. The, the, the prosecutors are like, that's not, there's no crime there. If you, whether you told the truth about that or not, it's not a crime to lie to Steve Bannon or, or lie to Asha Ringapa. It's only a, it's a crime if you're lying to the grand jury, sure. Um, but the judge disagreed. And ultimately, in order to compel his testimony, he received this immunity from the court. Yeah, and you made a really great point in your thread where you said, you know, it may be true that those statements don't constitute a crime in terms of lying, et cetera, but they could be used as evidence of part of a scheme to obstruct justice or something. In other words, they there could be ways in which they could be incriminating in unforeseen ways. Um, and for that, for that reason, the Fifth Amendment is construed very broadly. I mean, that that right, you know, is uh, interpreted very broadly for people to be able to invoke it. That's right. You have a very broad right to invoke. Uh, and frankly, this is one of the rare savvy moves that Cash Patel has made. I mean, Cash Patel 
at times can be kind of clownish, right? He doesn't he have like cash with his like a dollar sign uh, as in some of his merchandise. Like this guy's selling merchandise. He's out there all the time. And this is a guy who was like, he was like supporting the Devin Nunez thing. He was out there, like you said, the DOD. Like he's just out there all the time. And, and, and putting himself out there for Trump with this hard to believe story was also questionable. So this was, I thought, a rare savvy move where he's like, look, I'm, I'm taking the fifth and I'm not accepting um, your statement that this doesn't implicate me. In fact, it stands in contrast to what Christina Bob did because Christina Bob and reportedly said, oh, yeah, you're right, the Justice Department. I have, I didn't do anything wrong. I told you the truth when I said that based to, to the best of my knowledge, you, all, you got all the documents because I had been deceived in some way. That got her to a similar place, maybe. But I think what, what Cash Patel did was obtain himself um, uh, a protection that doesn't rely on the goodwill of prosecutors, which I think in his case is a, is a good idea. Yeah. So – He's getting a good deal, seems like, maybe. Why would DOJ go down this road with him? What well, What is their end game here? Well, their end game is to build a prosecution of Donald Trump. And that's, I, I, that is not something I say lightly, because I think that all too often people are quick to jump on this bandwagon, like, oh, Trump's going down and all that sort of stuff. But here, that's the obvious reason to do this. So... You know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I often put people in the grand jury to essentially lock them out of a story. So you would have, for example, uh, the, the serial bank robber who went and robbed another bank. I mean, I remember one case where there was a guy who had robbed a number of banks. He was in prison and then he was released from prison and I, he robbed another bank you, it, with the clothes that he had on that they issued him from the prison uh, uh, when he left. So literally it was like 90 minutes after he was released from prison, he just like walked down the street to another bank and robbed the bank. And his girl, his girlfriend had like a very elaborate story for why, you know, it wasn't him or something along those lines. And I put her in the grand jury basically to lock out that story. Like it's one thing to say that story, uh, kind of verbally just in a, a, an offhand conversation. It's another thing under oath to do it. And so I think that's what was going on here. I think prosecutors don't believe that Cash Patel actually sat in a room with Donald Trump where he made some proclamation about declassifying documents. And they wanted to put that to the test. And so they're not really looking to prosecute Cash Patel uh, you know, for his statements about declassifying documents. They're trying to knock out a potential defense of Donald Trump. So here's my question when I was reading this and um... – thinking about now Cash Patel not being able to fall back on, on the fifth. So in contrast to this example that you just gave with the girlfriend, presumably in that case, if she were to lie to the grand jury and stick by her story, it's an alibi that could be disproven um, with some investigation. Yeah. And then it would be clear that she had lied and then she would be criminally liable. Then, you know, there's she has a whole host of other problems on her hands because she would have lied to the grand jury. My question is, we're in a situation where Cash Patel's story is that he and Trump, as you said, were in some back room, just the two bros, and he declass magically, telepathically de declassified everything and, and Patel witnessed this somehow. What if he stuck by the story? In other words, 
we're not talking about someone who has a big moral compunction against lying, right? Like the guy has written a children's book, which he's selling, which is about Donald Trump having won the election. Okay. Um, and he's selling this and making money. So what, what is to, and, and how can that be disproven? In other words, if this happened on some unnamed date in some unnamed room in the White House or whatever, how is DOJ certain? Because, I mean, you know and I know that this did not happen. I, I think everyone knows. I think okay, we all know that. that out too. <laughs> we know this didn't happen. But, what, okay, I'm just, I'm just playing this out. I'm playing devil's advocate. He sits down and says, yep, we sat in the room and I watched him declassify it all. What happens then? Well, first of all, he's still going to have his immunity, okay, potentially. Now, if he lies, so the immunity does not cover him for lying in front of No, the okay, but how would they prove? Okay. They can't prove that, I think, potentially, unless, you know, they will be able to show. I mean, I don't think they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he lied to the grand jury. I think that they could show and point to inconsistencies between whatever he says and Trump says, which is going to happen because Trump can't, I don't think he's consistent with himself from one day to another. Um, but yeah, I think that really there's a very good chance here. There's very much a possibility, which is why, you know, you use the term wise when we were talking earlier, like is the DOJ wise like that? I don't know. But I think the wisdom comes here. And this is something that comes from experience is, the, is that knowing the story and locking him into the story itself has value for DOJ. In other words, let's say Cash Patel goes up and lies. And it's like, you know what? Me and Trump weren't alone in a room and he said X, Y, Z, A, B, C. One thing's for damn sure is that that is the story because he's saying yeah. it under oath and his position is going to have to be from that point onward because he wants his immunity and he doesn't want to get prosecuted that, yep, that was my story. I mean, you could say he was mistaken or he forgot or there's some detail he left out maybe around the edges, but the main story is going to be it. And it's going to be the story locked in now without consultation with Trump's criminal attorneys in the future after they've seen all the evidence that DOJ has. So I practice law now. I, some, I often am against the Justice Department. And one thing I avoid doing is making my story and, and my defense locked in until I know what all the evidence is and what all the cards are that the DOJ has, so to speak. So now, before all of that, he's going to lock himself into something, which I mm -hmm. think has value for DOJ. It also means that they can prepare for it and they can build yeah. their trial and their case against it. Uh, you That's know, to rebut true. It. Yeah. And I just think it's worth uh, gaming out that possibility only because, listen, we have a history of the people around Trump lying, lying to Congress, lying right. to federal agents. I mean, it's just a big lie fest. You know what I mean? So... <sighs> I think, you know, he tends to get people around him to be willing to literally commit crimes um, by by continuing a narrative that he's created, even if it means criminal liability for them. Um, but I, I think what you're saying is that in this situation, at least if he's listening to his legal advice, um, Cash Patel should not rest so easy that his lie would not be uh, disproven because he doesn't know what he doesn't know what the DOJ knows. Right. I mean, my advice to him and my advice to anybody in that situation, and I I have had to advise witnesses who are in a situation where they are 
uh, essentially being locked in for a particular testimony. And sometimes it's their employer who <laughs> wants them to have a different view. So it's, it's not that dissimilar. I always advise them to just tell the truth. Like the only way you can get in trouble, you cash Patel get in trouble is by lying. So why, why put yourself out there? But if he's inclined to lie, it better be, you know, it, it better be very, you know, very carefully thought through and or very, and potentially very simple. Like I kind of remember this conversation with Trump. I don't remember all the details. I think I remember saying him saying that like soften it, make it very vague. So it's hard to disprove and it's just about his memory and so on. But then that weakens it. That's good. That, that's right. a win for, win for DOJ. People view this stuff in such black and white ways. It's really like, gosh, there's just a lot of shades of gray here. And, you know, I just finished a trial yesterday and like that's, it was all about shade. It's all about shades of gray in the trial. And I think, you know, DOJ, if they got that kind of result here, would have to regard that as a win. Yeah. Because then he dilutes this, ostensible defense, which I don't think is actually truly a defense, but it is something that they have to prepare for Trump to claim and be able to address. But you're saying that that uh, even if he were inclined to lie, Patel would be wise to dilute it, um, which then, you know, kind of fuzzy it up, uh, which then, of course, makes it not so useful to Trump anyway. Right. It makes it not compelling. And just to be clear, I agree with you. It's not technically a defense. Legally, it's not. The issue um, would be that it would give some sort of excuse for Trump as to why he's being so sloppy with documents and why he's taking him around. It would give him an excuse that a jury might find compelling. So now, you know, now that sounds going to sound a lot less compelling to a jury. And that's a win for the Justice Department. And you can see now, if you think about it this way, why I, I think it, it shows that they're thinking about how to build a case against Trump and build charges against him, which yeah. is really interesting. And by the way, it happened in D.C., which is also interesting because, you know, there, there's a real question about where they're going to charge this. And the fact that they decided that they were going to choose a, a federal grand jury in D.C., it suggests it doesn't lock him in to this, but it suggests that they are trying to bring this case in D.C., and the theory there is that part of the crime was committed in that jurisdiction and presumably would be maybe the removal of the classified documents from the White House. Is that right? Right. And or yes. And or if there was an obstruction of justice, it may be, for example, as well, for those crimes that part of that occurred in D.C. In other words, even if people were lying in Mar-a-Lago or Trump was ordering people to move documents out in Florida that maybe there was a lawyer in D.C. who was part of that. So you have to you have to look at each crime separately. Mm-hmm. So sometimes and this has happened to the Justice Department. In fact, there have been cases where the judge is like, OK, you, venue is proper is to count one, but not to two, three and four. And I'm going to those have to get those I'm going to strike or you're going to have to bring them in another jurisdiction or whatever. This whole idea of venue, by the way, and where case crimes can be charged just so everyone understands the constitution says you have to you have to charge crimes where they occurred otherwise you could imagine the you know the doj could decide wyoming's the best place to charge crimes and everyone's got a book at the wyoming to have their criminal trials suddenly a great day to be a lawyer a criminal defense lawyer in wyoming so that's just not how it works but crimes occur in multiple jurisdictions all the time there are often fights about which who, who gets to bring it. And I was involved in some of those where different components of the Justice Department are like, 
We want, I, I would always want to bring cases in Chicago, financial cases, because I, we had venue over certain financial transactions there. Uh, some, some, some of my colleagues in New York wanted to bring the cases there and we would have discussions, uh, debates, whatever, about who was going to bring the case. And it was a big deal in New York because Manhattan and Brooklyn are right next to each other. And they would, yeah. And I think the Manafort trial was split up because of some counts were brought in Virginia and the other ones I think were in DC. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And and, and that happens sometimes. And that might be what ended up happening here. They bring some case, some in DC and some in Florida. Um, Yeah. I think that's very possible. When, when we talk about the, the crime being committed in that uh, jurisdiction, is it, does it have to be one of the elements of the crime or just simply the act? Like in other words, when we talk about the commission of the crime, what's the, the determinative part? Can that... be any part. So what would happen? I'll give you an example that this is a more common example. Uh, like when you have a fraudulent scheme, somebody gets defrauded. If the wire transfer for the money passed through New York, uh, federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York are back, we're charging it here. Because the money transfer passed through some bank in New York, so we have venue over it. That's all it would take. Um, but there would be an argument as to venue being better elsewhere. And so I would be like, well, wait, but the servers of the transaction were here in Chicago or whatever it might be. And we would argue about that back and forth. But that's all it would take. And there's a lot of cases in which um, courts have said that, you know, something that slight about money transfers passing through a, transi- tra- uh, through a particular jurisdiction is enough. Uh, judges don't like to overturn criminal convictions on things like venue, uh, but yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's less it's it's less risky if every you know if you bring this case in Florida, that's apparent why it was brought there. There's not going to be a lot of debate, um, and when I've had debates over venue, it's very easy for me to tell the judge, hey, everything in the crime occurred here. You know, they're saying that this actually occurred elsewhere. You know, even when I was prosecuting, let's say people who are engaging in financial transactions from New York. Well, yeah, but the servers were here in Chicago and the, and the victims were here in Chicago. The fraud was therefore in Chicago. And so you want to have those answers and it's more compelling to a court if there's something more substantial than, uh, yeah, so the email was routed through, right. through the White House server. And, and just to <laughs> underscore, this matters because a Florida venue is going to be likely more favorable to Trump in terms of a jury and a DC trial would be better for DOJ. I think is that's that one, the idea? One, one piece of it. I mean, also, so that's part, part of it. The judges are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get Eileen Cannon potentially in Florida. <laughs> um, I don't think that DOJ wants to draw her again. Um, in DC, the judges there are much more familiar with dealing with federal prosecutions of federal officials. You also have the D.C. Circuit's composition is much more favorable, I would say, to the government, potentially than the Fourth Circuit, where you have a bunch of Trump appointees who are going to be, you know, potentially deciding a case involving uh, the former president that appointed them. And in addition to that, the case law in in D.C. is very good on things like overcoming executive privilege Mm-hmm. And even attorney-client privilege in cases involving the grand jury yeah. investigation of the former president. So I would like that piece of it as well. Awesome. 
Well, we will stay tuned and maybe Cash Patel will make an appearance in some other random part of our lives uh, before this move forwards in his in his Forrest Gump role. Um, we will be right back with our next topic. And that is the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk. I have to say, Asha, I actually uh, was wondering whether or not there might just be a settlement uh, in which Elon Musk would pay a billion or two or three to not take over Twitter. I was actually, for a period of time, pretty surprised that this ended up going through. Um, but it makes sense because he really screwed up the purchase here and his alternatives were not a good. They were basically pay billions for nothing or overpay uh, by quite a bit for Twitter. Yes, and he chose the latter and he has made quite a splash uh, since he's he's taken over and apparently feels like it's up to the users of Twitter to help him make up his shortfall, I guess. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, I have to say, and, and I don't know about you, I didn't know a ton about Elon Musk before all of this in the, in the sense that like, I knew who he was. Okay. I knew he, you know, he created, you know, he was the head of Tesla, SpaceX and, he seemed like an eccentric guy. And I remember when he got in trouble with the SEC for his tweets and so on. But I have to say, by the way, during this whole process, like he came off to me like kind of like some right wing meme bro, sort of like troll bro guy who's like, you know, tweeting out like whatever the right wing memes were and kind of repeating a lot of questionable tropes even before the sale was completed. So I, I was a little, I thought that was bizarre, bizarre person to be buying Twitter. And then since then, you know, it's a very, I think when you take over uh, a product that relies on the goodwill and the trust of, of your customer base, uh, having some big change off the gate in which you're imposing things on them is a really odd first note uh, and it's yeah. very problematic. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of problematic things. And, <laughs> no uh, kidding. Yeah. You know, first, I mean, he fired everybody. He's basically made himself the supreme overlord of Twitter. And I think that that's where the intersection of him also personally tweeting his views becomes problematic. Because, you know, one of the things that Twitter and social media platforms generally have sort of tried to push, and I don't think this has been necessarily true, but they've tried to push themselves as sort of neutral forums, right? They're just there. They're just providing kind of what I believe Elon Musk has called the digital town square and everybody else is there to talk. And we can talk about how that model and metaphor is problematic. But if the person in charge of that is also clearly expressing very strong views about certain things, I think you, and is in control of the forum, right? Like when I go to the New Haven Town Green, um, the city of New Haven doesn't control who gets hurt. I mean, they have to give out permits to anybody who comes. They can't discriminate on viewpoint. And after that, it's up to whoever the speaker is. Um, you know, he's, he, he, that's not true of Elon Musk. Like he has a lot, he has a lot of powerful lever, levers within his control. And so, you know, his personal biases, when they come through uh, undermine trust, when he is tweeting conspiracy theories, I mean, right after this attack on Paul Pelosi, he tweeted out, you know, uh, or he uh, 
amplified a conspiracy theory about uh, who about what what had happened and who this person was. I mean, this is really not it's not becoming, I guess I would say, someone who's in charge of an incredibly powerful platform where, by the way, disinformation and, uh, you know, the integrity of of information is already an issue. Yeah, I mean, there's already a lot of speculation about Twitter being unfair. And, 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 and I will just say a lot of folks on the right can, were convinced that they were being silenced, discriminated against, and so on and so forth. To me, the way to handle that is to do almost like Jeff Bezos did with the Washington Post. Like, okay, I'm buying this, but I'm kind of like off the scene. I don't really say anything. I mean, I haven't heard a word from that guy about what he's doing at the Washington Post one way or the other, right? You just sort of almost forget that he owns it because he's completely passive and behind the scenes. And I, you know, I think Elon Musk, he was coming in with a sink. I'm not even sure what the point of that was on day one. Remember carrying in like a sink, was it, I think? Um, Is it because he's putting everything down the drain? Oh, maybe. Okay. That's why you're smarter than I am. So yeah, maybe. He's like changed his, you know. Did it have a garbage disposal? I don't know. I don't know, right? I thought maybe a trash can. I don't know. Yeah, But anyways, he comes in with a sink. It's just like this big statement. Then he's like, he changed his profile to Chief Twit. And he's off there proclaiming all this stuff via tweet. And look, it, you know, the guy's obviously made a lot of money. He's the richest man on earth and all that. I appreciate that. Um, but he, his, this is not the first time that he has kind of gone off and said a bunch of things and gotten himself in trouble. Uh, he, he got himself in trouble with the SEC, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think his statements in the course of the litigation over purchasing Twitter ended up really biting him in the ass, so to speak. Uh, and I think here he's getting himself in more trouble and is wild behind the scenes. And I'm sure you've heard some of this as well. There's people trying to organize boycotts and trying to convince you to leave Twitter and this and that. I, I don't know whether that's really going to be successful or not. I'm certainly not planning to march out, uh, but it just gives you a sense of the reaction people have. Yeah. And also, I mean, his initial moves seem to suggest that he fully doesn't understand the platform or the theory of the mm-hmm. platform. So, you know, one of the things that he suddenly came out with was that he wanted to charge people with blue check marks, the verified accounts, $20 a month, an ongoing fee to maintain their verification status. Um, obviously, he wasn't too committed to that because I believe Stephen King, <laughs> this is really funny, uh, basically more or less told him to F off. And then Elon Musk countered with, well, how about $8? So I, you know, so somehow he just reduced it like within the, you know, within a tweet in a response to from $20 to $8, which was a huge, you know, discount. Uh, right. I think we could get him down maybe to, you know, $1.99 or something. Um, but, you know, and his reasoning is that he said, you know, this is a, lord and peasant system for twitter and you know the lords must pay or everyone can become a lord i don't know what the what his his suggestion is but right. he seems to think of verification in terms of prestige and status where in a you know oversaturated information environment like twitter it seems to me that it is providing everyone a service in terms of at least signaling that these people are who they say they are 
And because people are going to them for various sources of information, either because they're public figures or they're journalists or whatever, that that being able to readily identify that is important in terms of preserving the integrity of the marketplace of ideas, right? This reduces transaction costs for everyone because as a user... I don't have to go to five different Renato Mariotti feeds to figure out which one is the real Renato Mariotti. If I'm criticizing Renato Mariotti, I don't tag the poor Renato Mariotti who is just living his life in, you know, in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like eating pasta and who suddenly gets, you know, inundated with whatever trolls and and hate mail or whatever. Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that it is a useful function for the platform, which isn't to say that there's not a cost associated with it, that, you know, I I pay extra for TSA pre-check, you know, but you know what? I do it once every five years Mm -hmm. and I do it, you know, and and that's because that's the cost associated with it. It's not a money-making scheme for the government, right? Um, Right? And so that's the part that I think, to me, suggested that he doesn't, he's not really understanding like what the dynamics are in this platform and what you need to make this work in a way that is actually useful to the people on the site and to incentivize people to behave and use it in a way that's, um, you know, appropriate and, and net productive and good. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I think, you know, an argument can be made that there could be a value in having all sorts of people have the ability to pay for verification of their identity just to show that they are who they say they are. In other words, they're not bots or, you know, whatever from a troll farm or something. So Jane Doe uh, from every town USA can pay whatever and she can be verified just to show that, hey, I am a human, real human being and I am who I say I am. I actually do live in every town USA and my name is actually Jane Doe and so on. I think that could be fine in the same way that, you know, when we were both at Yale Law School, having the wall, uh, which was a, a, a wall where you could post your comments where you had to sign them with your own real name. I think, you know, it can mean that it can put some extra weight to it and say, okay, this is something that person's willing to put their real identity with. I think, first of all, if you're, but if, uh, so I think that's fine, but I do think I agree with you that there's another value to say, here's the people who, frankly, create the content that people come to Twitter to to read. I mean, the reality is we all come to Twitter in many ways to read the news or to see what celebrities are saying or whatever. There is some value in sort of separating that, and I could see that. I also think just from a business perspective, it probably makes sense to tell the Stephen Kings of the world that you're going to let them have that for free or incentivize them in some way or provide them extra value to, to stay there and create content versus going somewhere else. But I'm not a business person, but I will just say, you know, for me, the biggest concern, I mean, I, he can tr- try to ruin Twitter in certain degrees like that. I think the thing that concerns me is, you know, eventually if he ruins Twitter, people will move to some other platform just as they have people moved off Facebook to Instagram or TikTok or wherever. But I think that, the concern is just that he skews and, and and in the short run, while everyone's on Twitter is is feeding disinformation to people. I think that's the concern and, and the reason I think this topic's worth yeah. worth discussing. And just on, on the point about every you know, people being verified, I, I completely agree with you. I think moving towards a system where more people are verified 
would be good. And, you know, you can, I, I saw somebody in one of the replies actually had a neat graphic where it had different colored check marks for different categories of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, elected mm-hmm. officials are blue and entertainment people are purple. And, you know, you're right. like, I guess, ordinary person is green or, uh, you know, and so, you know, you could move towards a system where you make people pay for verification. I personally think it should be like, a one-time fee. You could also have a separate subscription type of service where people pay for the service, but then that, that gets into, you know, whether you have access issues in terms of use. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 it was just, just the, it seemed to me not like a, this went to the board. They had tested this out. They had done focus groups. They had found a price point. Right. They really modeled this out. It just seemed like he pulled it out of his butt one day and just was like, this not, you know what I'm saying? Um, which, you know, kind of is alarming. And I think the most recent thing that I saw is that he also now wants to start um, having paywalled videos, allowing people to use paywalled videos, which can, in- will, can include adult content. So it sounds like, so I guess sort of turning this into, turning Twitter into OnlyFans or something, which I don't use and I don't, I guess it's a video subscription service where people do things. Um, Give it so, a big. Um, yeah. Uh, but, so, but I think, yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I guess here's what I say. I, in theory, I don't have trouble. The adult thing, we'll put that to the side. But, it, uh, you know, having a subscription version of your feed doesn't really bother me. Like if he's trying to basically put the subscription, uh, newsletter companies out of business or, you know, compete with them. Like, that's fine. Like, okay, now we'll have the Asha Ringapa premium feed or something. Um, I don't have a huge problem with that, but I think he needs to be thinking about and concerned about how, whether or not he's going to dilute or harm his main product when he does it. Right. And I think, yeah. And what he's offering to the user, because really it, the reason that these platforms are free is because we're the product. And our data is being given to advertisers. So, you know, and I haven't heard him say yet. He said, you know, some of these, you know, subscribing or Twitter blue, you can reduce ads. But he hasn't said what I think is more important to most people, which is I'm not going to – we won't use your data. We won't actually collect data on you. That would be, I think, a game changer for a platform to say if you pay, nothing about you gets collected. And mm-hmm. nothing gets shared. To me, that would be a worthwhile thing to pay for. Um, yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't know that. I think he has, there's too many dollar signs associated with that data. Uh, I think for him to give, give that up completely. I agree. I agree. I don't see it happening. So before we go, I heard there's going to be a new addition to the Rangapa family soon. Who's that? Yes. So as you know, Renato, my beloved cat of 18 years passed away in September, Chuckley. Um, and it was really sad. He was with me for most of my adult life. So it's been strange not having a cat in the household, but I will be welcoming a new kitty on Saturday. He's being brought up from a rescue in West Virginia. So I'm excited. Yeah. I have seen photos of this cat, and he looks amazing. Uh, How old is he? He is 12 weeks. Wow. 
And where is he, like, where, where is he, like, is he, like, is this a shelter? Or is this, like, yeah, so, you know, my, my local shelter, I put in an application, but I think, you know, they're doing things on appointment only, and my application's been sitting there for a while. So I went on Pet Finder. Do, have you ever used Pet Finder? No. Uh, wow. Okay, Pet Finder. Is this, like, literally, like, it's, like, eBay for pets? It's, like, a... It's like a dating service with vet, with pets. So you like, you scroll <laughs> through. Right. You yeah, right. you can like, you can search for, you know, like I put in long hair, cat, um, any gender, you know, uh, young or kitten within, you know, 100 miles of my zip code. And then I get all of the results. Wow. Yeah. But it's like... It's a kind of a roller coaster because, you know, when I first got on, you see all these like cute kitties and I would apply and, you know, and it, like I inquire and they'd be like, yeah, Popeye is still available. Put in an application now. And then I'd put in the application and then it would be like he's been adopted or I put in one application and the person like wrote back to me pretty quickly. And this person had asked for a lot of different questions like what kind of water do you use and what kind of litter do you use like it was very oh, wow. very detailed questions and he wrote back and was like i'm sure you'll find the perfect cat for you but i just don't think you're the right fit and i was like <laughs> why? now you know what it's like to be a guy in a dating app <laughs> i didn't know what before. i did wrong i was like what are you talking about <laughs> like what why am i not and i got kind of mad i wrote back i was like uh, why am i not a good fit so Wow. Um, it's, it's a little bit stressful because, uh, you know, and then, you know, you keep going back and much like a dating site, you see some of the same faces still there after like weeks and weeks, which is sort of sad too, because they're it not is. getting adopted. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, you also encounter certain things like there were some pets that I liked, but there are some shelters that won't adopt out of state, for example. Okay. There are some, I don't know if this is true for dogs, I doubt it, but with kittens, a lot of places don't want to adopt out a single kitten. They want them to only go out in pairs. Oh, wow. I don't know if this is only because to increase the number of adoptions, but... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it, it became very complicated. So I'm very lucky that uh, this one is coming. And as I told you, I'm I'm hoping that it's real because the pictures were a little blurry and the person <laughs> is not always responsive. So you so got I'm catfished like, by a cat? I so. might have. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not being catfished by a cat. Wow. So where's this? Where's the kitten coming from? She says West Virginia. Allegedly, West Virginia. Allegedly, allegedly. And, so, and what is the what is the kitty's name? Do we know yet? So the kitty's name on the profile is Billy. Oh my God, that's that's generic name right there. That's, yeah, that's like uh, wow. That that's like uh, that's super uh, super basic. Yeah, it's super basic. Um, and so. I am thinking of alternatives, and my last cat was named Chuckley, which is an Indian snack food. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a it's a crunchy snack, uh, like kind of a fried dough in a spiral shape. Oh um, Yeah. So I'm thinking of staying with the Indian snack food theme. Um, so samosa oh, is on the. Papadam could work. Yeah, that's a, that's an option. Um, you know, okay. uh, yeah, we'll see. And 
Wow. I, I definitely think I'm, I'm, it has to be something Indian. We've got to have a big reveal in the next episode. I know, I know. Yeah, Samosa or Papadam or whatever, he definitely right. has to make an appearance. If he's real, if he's actually a cat. Actually, I mean, <laughs> what, what is... We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll have to prove it. We'll have to prove it next time. But, but Papadam, Samosa, yeah. Chutney, whatever. Exactly. Um, and what about your... You have a puppy, too. I do. Henry is from a from a rescue here in Illinois, and it was actually the rescue. I got a dog when I was a little boy, uh, so we went back to the same rescue that I had gotten. It was a golden rescue, so I thought I was getting a golden retriever. The rescue said he was a golden retriever mix, um, and so we were very excited. It turns out Henry has no golden retriever in him at all, um, <laughs> but he came from a rescue in, um, in uh, Puerto Rico. Where his owner, his owner had passed, and so he went from uh, from uh, that owner turned him in to a rescue. He went to a uh, to a foster home there in Puerto Rico, and we're actually in touch with the foster mom. And then he went to a rescue here in Illinois, and then to a foster parent, and then he's with us. So Henry is awesome; like he's a super mutt, a mix of a bazillion different breeds. Um, but he is just great because he's like so grateful to have a home. And every time I come home, he is like so excited because he's like not 100% sure that I was coming back. Oh, so no. it's like, it's actually so sweet because he's just like, uh, you know, I, when I leave this room for po- like from podcasting, he'll be like, oh my God, you're here. Like, yes, this is amazing. Every single time he sees me, maybe that'll wear off after a few years. I'll figure out I'm coming back. But for right now, it's a great feeling. Have you ever seen the card, the movie animated movie, the secret life of pets? No. Yeah. See, it, having gone through, you know, two children, I, I was able to, um, indulge in these things that's what that was worth watching it's cute it has check it, out. it has some of those uh um personalities of of pets including the one that sits and waits for the owner to come home every day oh, wondering mine. if they're coming back yeah yeah that's so cute and then you also have a bird dolly the bird that was my wife's bird and i was very skeptical of dolly uh, in the beginning because she could be noisy and i wasn't sure what to make of her She's actually great. I I I am her favorite person. I think because I'm tall. Uh, I don't know because like birds like to perch on the to the highest uh, branch. But Dolly is awesome. She's a, a female cockatiel, mm. and she hurt her wing when she was a little bird. Uh, her, her yes, and so she can't fly. So she loves to uh, sit on my shoulder. Uh, which she does a lot. And she did it once on television because I couldn't get her off. She refused to get off. And so I just, I appeared on Canadian TV one time with Dolly. Oh, uh, that's there. awesome. That must've been a hit. It, it, it was a hit in Canada. I think the Canadian host, host contacted me multiple times about it. She also makes verbal appearances from time to time. If I don't have enough time to get her out of the room, uh, you and you hear like tweeting in the background, uh, I'm not in a bird sanctuary. I'm just in my kitchen. So. And do the bird and the dog get along? Yes, which is to say that Henry is not curious that much about Dolly, which is great. Henry's just like, yeah, she. this is something that drops seeds that I can eat. And so out of her cage, so that's good. Let's just sort of eat the seeds and just let her be and everyone's happy. So. Yeah. See, that works with a dog. I think 
I don't yeah. think, no. Not so no, much. That would not work. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Well, maybe in future episodes, there may be cameo appearances. Guest appearances. We'll yes. have like a whole menagerie. will be like um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We'll have like Absolutely. maybe, you know, King Friday will show up or Henry or exactly. Samosa or whoever. <laughs> right. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for It's Complicated. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe. Uh, and let us know what your views are in the comments below. Or, hey, maybe tweet at us and we'll hear your comments and respond. <laughs>